Well, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 4 tonight. So we're um, on Wednesday nights here, the month of December, as well as in the sanctuary on Sundays. We're focusing on the theme of the incarnation. All of us that are teaching those evenings and mornings, just to get us centered and focused on what Christ has done for us and for the world by coming. God's timing is perfect. And we're going to see that tonight. He may not follow your watch or your expectations of what should happen when, but his timing is perfect. It's our timing that's off. It's not his. The birth of Christ came together and was predicted according to God's perfect plan schedule before even the beginning of time as we know it. The Godhead planned this and set a specific time that Christ would come and bring redemption to the world. The God who defines the word synchronize foretold through the prophets for centuries, as we'll look at for a little bit, about Christ's arrival, that the chosen Messiah to come would bring in a new kingdom and a new world. This was arranged and engineered before the beginning of time, as I said. Like a thousand-piece puzzle, tiny little pieces in a thousand-piece puzzle, fit snugly together, so God's preordained plan and timing for the incarnation leaves no room for error. None. Now, interestingly, last week, I just have a little mini two-part series, and part one was last week, talking about the coming of Christ, but maybe with a, a, a double meaning to it, in addition to his birth. And we saw last week in Philippians, we were talking about a church that Paul deeply loved. He referred to them as his joy and his crown. However, it was also a church that was divided and broken. There was a lot of conflict that was unresolved in that congregation. And it primarily started between, between two women. We think that these women, well, we know these women were very much in, involved in ministry because Paul said they worked with him at his side in the work of the gospel. He says that in Philippians. When Paul and his friends, Silas, Timothy, first came to Philippi, there was not a synagogue in the town. It was a very Gentile area, and there wasn't a synagogue, and so when they went to meet for prayer, they ended up at the riverbed along the river. And when they went there, there was three or four other women down there praying. And they got into discussion, and Paul shared the gospel with them, and they were converted right on the shores of that particular river. It's believed that some of those same women are referring to maybe a couple of them who were very, very strong women. 
I mean, they laid their lives down. These two in particular that I'm going to talk about that were having problems laid their lives down for the cause of the gospel by Paul's side. He actually mentions that. Yet they have found themselves in a quandary, in some differences that are creating conflict they can't resolve on their own. And I think Paul was very, very concerned that maybe it was now starting to impact the church that he loved so much. And he'd heard about this through a report. He was uh, on house arrest in Rome when he wrote the book of Philippians. And they were quite concerned, the church family there, that they hadn't heard from him for a while. Couple, two to four years. No letters being written there. And so they're questioning, is he even alive? They know that he's going there to meet Caesar because when he was in Jerusalem, he got so many mock trials and was going to be ambushed twice by the Jews that he appealed his case to Caesar. And the governor at that time said to Caesar, you will go. And so he went to Rome, and he was in Rome. Christians greeted him there, and they walked with him along the way, the Appian Way, which is actually still there in Rome. And they put him on house arrest. He was um, given a lot of freedom. He had to pay his own rent in this particular place of confinement. But the Romans allowed him to have visitors, both in the palace guard also high officials in government, and then many other people in the community. And he, for two to four years, preached the gospel to all of these people. It was amazing. Amazing. He was chained to a guard all that time, about an eight-inch chain by the wrist. So he was confined. He was given privilege. Anyhow, so he finally writes this letter, Philippians, to them because he knows their concern for him. And he writes this letter, says, don't worry about me. Actually, in chapter 1, he goes, you can just put your worry away from me. I'm exactly where God wants me. Matter of fact, it's been clear with me chained to this guard and many guards, because they had three shifts, you know, so every 24 hours, he was chained to three different guards. And that's a lot of guards when you're talking two to four years. And so he actually says, do not feel bad for me because I have been put here by the Lord. This is my post in assignment. I've been put here by the Lord and the gospel has made its advancement in the palace, in the whole Palace guard. So don't feel bad about me. It's a great chapter, chapter one. But then we get into chapter two, and he starts stating his concern. He makes it very, very clear that he's quite concerned that they're not encouraging one another or loving one another. This is verse one through four, Philippians chapter two. And since they're in Christ... These are benefits that they've discovered in the Lord. The Lord has brought them encouragement. The Lord has loved them unceasingly. 
The Lord has given them a spirit of sincerity and kindness through the Holy Spirit, but they're not living that way towards each other. And I mentioned last week, for us as believers to live in bitterness or unforgiveness or unkindness towards other believers is the height of hypocrisy. It's the height of hypocrisy. Paul says, God has, Christ has forgiven us, so therefore, in light of that, almost to the same degree, we should forgive one another. So these women are struggling, and in chapter 4, Paul actually says, it's probably to one of his elders, now I want you, my friend and companion, I want you to work with these two women, and I want you to help them agree in the Lord and be of the same mind which they have in Christ. We need to resolve this matter, okay? And then out of nowhere, this is the dual purpose of what he's saying right here. Out of nowhere, he starts talking about humility. And he says, you shouldn't think of yourselves as more significant than the other people in your fellowship. And you shouldn't look after your own interest, but rather the interest of other people. That's selfless. You should humble yourselves in the body of Christ there and resolve these matters. And then he says, for Jesus Christ himself took on the form of man, came to earth being born in the likeness of man. He didn't consider equality because he was one of the Trinity, God, God the Father, God the Son, God and the Holy Spirit. He didn't consider, he didn't grasp, grasp the, the rights that he had as being part of the Godhead and insisting that he stay in heaven, which he could have done. But instead, he took on him the form of a servant and was created in the likeness of men. He lowered his standards. He lowered himself to become one of us. And he humbled himself and became obedient to even death on a cross. So it's just kind of really made it curious for me that he's talking to a church about their conflict that they can't resolve, and then he uses the birth of Christ as an example for them to walk in humility. It's amazing. Well, now in the book of Galatians, he does something similar. The Galatians were... Uh, many, many Gentiles, many Greeks that had come to Christ. They're a fairly young church. Paul was their spiritual father as well. And apparently it didn't take very long for some false teaching to make its way into the church. Paul's message to the Galatian Christians is that we are saved 
by grace through faith. Not of ourselves are we saved. It is the gift of God. He actually says that in Ephesians. Yet there were some Christian Jews in that particular church that started permeating this lie that our salvation in Christ was not complete through his death on the cross and the empty tomb. And they were insisting, because they were raised Jewish and had a hard time wrapping their head around circumcision, and they continued to do it, that they started spreading the word in the church that the cross of Christ was not enough. Now as Christians, you need to go out and take on the right of circumcision. Then you will be pleasing to God. So they were spreading, Paul calls it a false gospel. They were spreading a false gospel, and it was toxic, devastating. Matter of fact, Paul was so angry at one point, of course you know what circumcision is. He said, whoever's causing the confusion in this church about circumcision, rather than just faith in Christ, I wish they would go all the way with themselves and emasculate themselves. That's how angry he was. By what they were saying. Well, here he is again. He's talking to them about God is sovereign. Our faith is given to us by the Lord. He's created all of it in a providential, sovereign way for his people to believe. None of it is of us. It is all by the Lord. Now, I would say Pastor Rick does say, mysteriously speaking, although we, we know that we have nothing to do with our salvation... Why are we saved? Because he chose us. Period. There's a period after that phrase. He chose us. We only chose him because he chose us. First. We only love him because he loved us first. And so Rick says, though, but the Lord in his grace mysteriously, the salvation experience, even though it's all of him, he gives us an opportunity to respond. But even that is from him. And so Paul is saying, you've gone too far with this. You're starting to live in the flesh. Okay, now look at Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to read seven verses, and you'll see how he shifts from this argument into the birth of Christ again. It's amazing. Like, how did you go from there to here? Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. He's talking about um, um, becoming an heir with a wealthy family and receiving an inheritance someday. And he's using that as an illustration. And you'll see what I mean. He goes, an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Now, he's referring, for the most part, to wealthy families who have a son, and they have a vast amount of wealth and a vast amount of land and a massive inheritance. And they have this son who someday will be the owner of everything they own. 
and they're going to give all of their estate to their son as their heir. Okay, that's what he's talking about. That's where we're going. He says, uh, as long as this child is an heir and he's young, he's no different from a slave. He's not old enough to understand what a estate is. He's not old enough to benefit from the fact that he's going to inherit all of his family's property. He's too young to even understand what it means. And so Paul says he is as free and as good as a slave. He's not even aware of any benefits that he has. He goes on. Though he's the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers. So there was probably people that were hired by the parents to oversee and govern and manage the estate, knowing that it would go to the son someday. He's just a little guy. And he's royalty. But he doesn't know what's going on, so he has older people managing this future inheritance for him until the date set by the father. So we know where he's going with this, kind of. He's saying you're under this beautiful promise in this gracious inheritance, but when you receive it, is all determined by your father. He will set the time. He will set the date. He will give the green light when you step into this honorable role as an heir. And you understand what it means. Verse uh, 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to elementary principles of the world. And this is where it really gets good. He says in verse 4, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin. When the fullness of time came. And so, He's making this bridge here, and I'm going like, where did that come from? You're talking to a church that really needs to know that God is in sovereign control of everything, including your salvation, and it's not about what you do. It's about what Christ has already done. But we see in verse 2, when Paul says he's talking about becoming an heir someday, that the father's the one that sets the time that he inherits. And then that trips Paul's thinking into this verse, how from the very beginning of time, God, the almighty creator, in the fullness of time that he set according to his own divine purposes in wisdom, he sent forth Christ to be born of a virgin. You see what he's done? He's kind of, he just pieces this all together, and I'm going, oh my Lord. I've always just loved that verse, but I had no idea that it was in a context of teaching them the sovereignty of God because they were doing their own thing. 
So, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son born of a virgin. I had read one time that the word fullness is actually a maternal term that has to do with a very pregnant woman who is almost full term. The fullness of time? You could share that with us ladies if I open the floor about what that feels all like and and you're ready. You're more than ready. More than ready. By the way, the secondary truth here or the third truth here to the fact that the Galatians needed to hear this, the incarnation is for our own personal benefit and that is What are you tired of waiting for? Is God able to come good on what you're waiting for? I think we kind of have a hard time waiting. I taught one time on a subject called God's waiting room. You ever been in God's waiting room? Not a pleasant place. Really no windows. The doors are too heavy to open. Now, a lot of us have different ways of waiting on the Lord. Go to a, a clinic sometime or a hospital and sit in the waiting room and just observe the people there. Some people pace back and forth. Some people demand that they've waited too long. Some people, like my mom used to do it. Of course, she was a nurse. She was used to it. But I, she used to take me. I used to get allergy shots when I was 10 years old. Four every week. It's a lovely time in my life. And I used to just look at my mom, and she'd just sit there, single mom, nurse, exhausted, put her head on the back of the wall and fall asleep. Some just fall asleep in the waiting room. Others read a magazine without a care in the world. And then there's others that are angry because nobody makes them wait which reminds me of an uh, administrative pastor that I once had. He went to a doctor's office one time, took time off of work. Doctor didn't come out for 45 minutes, and he left. Doctor sent him a bill for the meeting. He sent the bill back to the doctor because the doctor made him wait 45 minutes. And the doctor was so impressed that he tore up the bill. <laughs> Isn't that good? Try that one sometime. Anyhow, none of us like to wait. And the lesson here is that God set the time to send forth his son. And he also, on a very applicable level, sets the time of what he's going to do next in our life, which he also wants us to patiently trust him in and wait for and never. Of course, we all do it in different ways. Take matters in our own hands and get ahead of God. Okay, so anyhow, in the fullness of time, heaven was finally ready to give birth to earth. And Mary is ready to give birth. And Christ is born. Now, in addition to God's sovereign timetable that was fixed from the beginning of time, The world 
not knowingly was also making preparations that would maybe enhance um, the gospel message when Christ would come. In that, we know the main reason that Christ came when we came was because of the sovereignty of God. That's period. But there's some other very interesting developments going on in the known world at that time that you could imagine that would flow with the birth of Christ and after. Number one, the Romans were the world power of the known world at that time. And when Christ was born, it was a very rare time in the Roman world that it was a time of peace and no war. So a very, very peaceful time. It was also a time when the Romans' ingenuity was at an all-time high, and they were cutting and building roads, roads that are still there all over the known Roman world to make import, export much more user-friendly, other cities accessible, and, if you will, the traveling of the gospel message a lot easier and more acceptable. Right at that time, the Romans are in control. They're also making aqueducts, which are still there, big aqueducts. We have little canals here in Oregon, but they have aqueducts, big concrete aqueducts that go 100, 200, 300 miles, maybe more. They carry water because the number one commodity in the Middle East is water. And so the Romans are doing that, and they're cutting areas for people to travel in to make the gospel, I would say, easier to promote. And then at that time, there was, always, there was also one common language, one main language. How do you say it when you go to a place and English is the main language? What do you call it? The main language, the common language, the... The what? No, I don't know. It's just the, the, the number one language in that area, and it could be another country, okay? Huh? Native language, or the number one, not native, no, because that's the language of the country. You know what I'm talking about. Okay, you got the point. So the, the number one language, the leading language of that day was um, Greece, or Greek. Koine, Koine Greek, it's called Koine Greek. That was the common language. So now we have common roads to help with the travel of the gospel. And we have a common language that people could understand each other a little bit better, even in writing, so on and so forth. The other thing that's very fascinating is spiritually, it's the darkest time. They had just gone, the known world, the Jews, through 400 years of silence, there wasn't a prophet that spoke for 400 years. There wasn't another book written in those 400 years. It was a lot of wars during that time. And they were ready, more than ready, 
for the Messiah. And so, in that sense, the time was ripe. And it was in the fullness of time that God sent forth his son, born of a virgin. Now, sending his son wasn't a flip of a coin, just wasn't a positive thought. The pre-existent Christ and the Holy Spirit and God the Father planned in the courts of heaven that this day would come. And Jesus submitted that many years ago that this would be part of God's redemptive plan, that he would go. It's just that God fixed the time as to when it would be. And the Lord Jesus knew when he came, whenever that time was, that he would come to a very harsh place, that he would die on a cross, and he would be the redemption of the world because of his shed blood. He knew that too. And so he willingly, well, Paul said that. We took that out of Philippians. He willingly came, humbly and willingly walked away from heaven, temporarily. So it was planned. Now, Max Lucado, he's got a little book, a devotional book called uh, When God Came Near, and you probably should get it. It's really good. He says in detail about the birth of Christ like no one else could. So I just wrote down a couple of sentences about exactly what Christ came to do when he entered the womb of that 14-year-old Jewish girl. What he left, who he was. Divinity entered the world on the floor of a stable through the womb of a teenager in the presence of a carpenter. This newborn, who was introduced by an angelic choir to sleepy shepherds, overlooked the universe. The rags that he wore in the manger were replacements for his robes of eternity. His golden throne had been abandoned in favor of a dirty sheep pen. Think of it. In the fullness of time, the sovereign Lord of glory and omnipotence in one instance made himself breakable. Omnipotent means all-powerful. All-powerful. He made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo, God in the flesh as a fetus, holiness, sleeping in a womb, the creator of life being created. He created Mary. He made his mother, who then gave birth. And it happened at the precise moment when the father declared with a thundering shout that the fullness of time had come. So there was purpose to this, not only that we would have a savior and forgiveness, but look at verse four again. But when the fullness of time 
had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He was born to a Jewish teenage girl. She lived under the law of Moses. Of course, the law was not necessarily a positive thing. Paul tells us the law was created to prove to us that we can't live up to it. And as a result of not being lived up to it, we needed the grace of Christ. Because it's not about obeying the law. It's about what he did to complete the law on the cross. And so this Jewish woman was born under the law. Very, very Jewish. Her husband, Joseph, was from the tribe of Judah. Very Jewish. They lived in Nazareth. Born in Bethlehem. Not that far away. So he was born to a woman under the law. Now why was he born to a human woman? A human being. Why would the Lord subject his son's divinity and holiness to the womb of a teenage girl? Well, it's because he would be able to feel everything you and I felt. He would be able to be tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. So he had to take on that humanity in order for us to believe him or connect with him or see him or understand what he taught when he was here. He was born of a woman, so he took on the form of flesh and blood. Yet, he had to also be divine. Why? Because all of us, since Adam and Eve are born into sin. We are born with a sin nature. Sacrifices that are holy before the Lord have to be pure and without sin. So in the Old Testament, when they used to sacrifice lambs, they would find lambs that had no flaws. They had to be perfectly white. No cuts, no bruises, perfectly, as perfectly as they could find it, and then they would sacrifice the lamb. And the lamb would shed its blood for the sins of the world or for the sins of God's people for one year. It's called the Day of Atonement. One year. So in order for him to pay for our sins, he still had to maintain his divinity but he had to carry the curse that mankind has been given because of sin on the cross, even though he was sinless. So it was a perfect match. How the Lord, how God in his wisdom and sovereignty put together a divine person with humanity because he alone then could pay for the sins of the world and relate to us and feel everything. Salvation would not have been possible 
if he wasn't part man and part God. God man. Uh, one guy writes, the womb of the Virgin Mary became the divine furnace by which the Holy Spirit out of Mary's flesh and blood drew that body that was destined to be the sinless, obedient servant who would innocently take the curse for sin and hang on a cross for the sins of the world. And one of the benefits, Paul says, that in the fullness of time that he came, let's look down to verse 5, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, not under the law, but to redeem those under the law. So according to God's word, when we violate the law, and everybody does, we live under sin's curse of death. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So all of us, prior to meeting Christ, were destined for destruction. And anyone to this day that does not repent and come to Christ is destined for destruction. And it doesn't matter how nice of a person they are. Because it's not about niceness. It's about the blood that he shed on the cross that we believe in and yield our lives to him for. And so... We all had to be redeemed. Now, in the home of this wealthy family, where um, the child was too young to even know that he was an heir, he's in the same category as a slave. And then all of us were born into sin, and we are referred to, before we came to Christ, as slaves to sin. We're all slaves before Christ. Now we're love slaves to Christ. But then, before then, you and I couldn't do anything about it. We were slaves to sin. That's what the Bible says. And by the way, just a little sidebar here. During the holidays when we see our lovely family members and friends that we hardly ever see, and it can create a little bit of concern, just remember, if you're across the dinner table, or you're shopping with, or you're hanging out, with family for a while, and some of them are non-believers, and they may not have the best language or the best attitude and are flat-out disgusted with your faith, just remember, they're not believers. They're not alive spiritually. Paul says there are those that are carnally minded and carnal mind is death and those that are spiritually minded and spiritually minded people are alive. They're not accountable because they don't have the Holy Spirit or the convictions. So, now, if the believer comes with serious attitudes and foul language and they're acting like an unbeliever, we can talk to them. I do it all the time. But the unbelievers cut them a little slack. They don't even know the Lord. They don't even know that what they're saying is wrong. So anyhow, 
The father would determine with the slave how he could be redeemed. Actually, a slave in the home, no, I'm talking about slave, not just son, but slave, could actually pay their way out of being a slave if they had the capital to do it. More times than not, they didn't. They could literally buy their own freedom. More than, time, more than times that we're talking about, they couldn't. So the father would select the form of payment to free that slave. You either pay for them, set them free, take care of their families. But the father decided what the redemption would be to set that slave free. Well, the redemption that God used in this case to set you and us free was from the birth of Christ who would end up on the cross 33 years later and shed his blood as our redemption payment. That's why we've been redeemed. That's how we have been redeemed. Remember the little uh, center? Maybe they still have it, that game center in uh, Central Point. It's right off the freeway, right near, what is it? The Family Fun Center. I went through when my kids were little and, you know, played those silly little games with them. And I started getting into it, too. I wanted those coupons as well. I wanted to cash them in. And I just was amazed because I wanted to cash them in. I go up to this counter. You know what it's called? The Redemption Center. I go, now that's a good illustration. You get a little ticket, you cash it in, you get a nicer prize. Christ is our redemption center. And we cashed in a life of sin because of his grace. And we got an award that we'll never regret having. Amen, huh? Why is all this necessary that in the fullness of time God would send forth his son born of a virgin? Well, there's many reasons, not the least of which is we've been redeemed by that baby 33 years later that shed his blood, the price that needed to be paid for our souls. But if that wasn't enough, look at what Paul says next. Verse 4 again, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those, that's us, who were under the law or curse. Sinning against the law is a curse. We were under the curse. All of us were under the curse. All of mankind is under the curse. But when Christ went to the cross, he took our curse. There's a verse in the scripture says, cursed is every man that would hang upon a tree, same as dying on a cross. Cursed is everyone that goes to a tree to give their life. He became our curse. And we were redeemed because of that. So that, look at verse five, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons and daughters, 
God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, or Abba, Daddy. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You came in the fullness of time. Sidebar there, application on a lighter note. Maybe it's not too light. Wait on the Lord and trust him. His timing is perfect. Um, and then the forgiveness and the cleansing that would come from this little baby, grown man. And because of that cleansing and that forgiveness, I mean, I'll say it, the moment you and I were converted like that, I mean, the second you and I were converted, where you said, yes, yes, the Holy Spirit that fast part of the Trinity, entered into your soul and life. He's in us now. He's in us. And what Paul is saying is once you've been redeemed by this little babe in the manger that grew up to be a grown man and give his life freely on the cross, once you've been forgiven and redeemed, now you have become an heir and in your heart and in your very being, you see God as your Father. And you cry out to Him as your Father. He tells us to say, Our Father who art in heaven. And so there is just an inner knowing. And what, I, what I've read about this is that that sense in our life that we know the Father personally through Christ. We talk to Him. Reminds me of what Billy Graham, someone asked uh, Billy Graham, uh, or someone told Billy Graham one day, your God is dead. He goes, that's not possible. I just talked to him this morning. <laughs> we know it. We know that the Lord is inside of us, the Spirit of God, and Paul is indicating that that is evidence. The fact that we know the Lord is evidence that we've been adopted. We belong to him. No one in this room that knows Christ can say, I don't have a family. We've been adopted into God's family because of Christ. And you know, when someone's adopted, that could be pretty spendy these days, I understand. Ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000. The expense for our adoption was even greater. Blood of Christ. That was the expense for our adoption. And now you and I, we're heirs. You think, well, my parents never left me anything. Well, it doesn't matter. You have everything that you have. We will have the same glory and the same, I don't even know what benefits is a word they have in heaven, but the same glory and the same beauty and experience as Christ has. The Lord calls us brothers. Did you know that Jesus calls us brothers? 
It's in Hebrews. So now that we're adopted into God's family, we get all of the inheritance and all of the benefits and all of the blessings that even the Lord Jesus himself has. That's mind-boggling, but it's the way it is. It's truth. So, in the fullness of time, God sent his son for these reasons. I want to close with this. Um, Several prophecies have been given as to the detail of where he was born, why he was born, who was there, what happened after he was born, in detail, and you find those stories in Matthew and Luke. So there's, I just want you to hear a few of them. Uh, in one of the passages, it indicates the phrase, it just so happened. I really love that phrase, it just so happened. Like there's no accidents for us as people in the Lord. Nothing just happens. Nothing's karma. Nothing's just coincidental. This God that has perfect timing, that flung the stars into existence and counts them by number and name, also is in control of everything in our life. Not the least of which is what we read here today. Listen to this. It just so happened that in those specific days that we're celebrating this month, a decree was issued by Herod that a census be taken, something that didn't happen very often. And so right during that season, Joseph, who was from the tribe of Judah, had to take his very pregnant wife, Mary. I'm thinking they were in Nazareth. It's probably 60 miles, 60, 70 miles from Nazareth to uh, Bethlehem. Right at that moment, when she's ready to give birth, out of nowhere, there's a decree from Herod that a census could be taken and everybody that calls themselves Jewish, is going to the town of their forefathers or the tribe they're from. And in Joseph's case, guess where that was? Bethlehem. Coincidence? I think not. It just so happened that Joseph was the one there because he was the one required to register. Not Mary, Joseph. It just so happened that this specific event in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that a Messiah or a king would be born in Bethlehem 750 years before it happened. It just so happened that a star appeared, a couple years later, A star appeared 500 miles away from Bethlehem and the Persian wise men followed the star to the precise place where the baby Mary and Joseph were. The precise place. It just so happened 
that the wise men were lied to by the king, King Herod, about the desire to know the location of this new king so he too could worship him. But after being warned in a dream by an angel about Herod's intention, they escaped using another route. It just so happened that Harris was, Herod was so furious that he had been outwitted by the wise men that he had all the boys in Bethlehem under the age of two, which it's surmised Jesus was anywhere from one to two by the time they showed up. So when you see wise men next to the manger, get them out of there because they don't belong there. They came two years later. Oh, but they're really pretty, I know. All the boys in Bethlehem under the age of two had to be killed, which unfortunately was also foretold by the prophet Jeremiah 625 years earlier. It just so happened that an angel also warned Mary and Joseph about the king's intention and told them to flee to Egypt, which was also prophesied 785 years earlier by the prophet Hosea. Then when Herod died, the angel appeared again and told him to return to Israel. That's in Hosea 11. A few more. It just so happened that when they returned, Joseph had heard that Herod's father, Archelaus, was now reigning. So out of fear, he decided to settle in his family, his settlers family in Nazareth. The word for Nazareth, Nazarene is root or branch, which Isaiah refers to in his prophecy about a coming Messiah 700 years prior. He refers to the Lord, the coming Messiah, to, as the root or branch. That was the meaning of Nazareth where they lived. And it just so happened that when the announcement from the angel came to Joseph announcing that his virgin bride-to-be would bear a child and would call his name Jesus for he would save his people from their sins, that he would also be called Emmanuel, which means God's with us, foretold by Isaiah 700 years prior. And it just so happened that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his only son, born of a virgin that we might be redeemed and be called his sons and daughters. Lord, we thank you so much for the truth of your scripture. And it goes on and on, Lord. There's so many more prophecies that are exact to the letter, to the moment, to the location, and for the purpose. Lord, fill our hearts with joy as we ponder these things and think about you and worship you in church and the music that we play having in our homes and the manger scenes and whatever it takes, Lord, keep yourself on the forefront of our mind and increase our joy knowing what you did when you didn't have to, to pay the price for our sin and then call us to an inheritance that we'll enjoy with you for eternity. This we ask, this we state, this we believe 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.